ninth chapter of Hebrews, verses 24 and 28. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 and 28. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Though Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Christians, if we're going to finish this race that we have begun, we're going to need to remember that we love Jesus because he first loved us, and that it is a wonderful love story that we are engaged in, that we're a part of. And this morning, uh, we're going to take another look at a piece of it, a piece of the story. Let me ask you something first, though. Have you ever set out to do something that you knew was going to take hard work and endurance to accomplish and gotten almost to the completion of it and just didn't finish? Have you ever done that? Have you ever just said, I, I can't I can't do it anymore or just throw in the towel right before you finished. Have you known someone who was who was who did that or was about to? I remember doing campus ministry. I had that talk a lot of times with college students. You've you've come this far. Finish your degree. Finish your degree. You can do it. You'll be glad you did it. And I can think of a host of things like that. Probably the, the most vivid remembrances um, in, in the fall of 2013 when Monica and I's oldest son decided he wanted to walk the Appalachian Trail and we thought well that sounds like a nice thing to do and he said well I want to walk the whole thing and, well that doesn't sound so smart and, and, and we went through this whole thing and mom and I are online looking at all like oh okay there was a mass murder in this part of the trail in, in 1997 and there were three bear attacks in the last 10 years and we started to do all that and we said are you sure you want to do this? And he counted the cost, and he set out to do it. But one thing that, that we all knew would happen is that it would become a very tiresome road the farther he went. So at first there was a lot of skepticism, not verbally. We wanted to encourage him, but, you know, I'd throw out that little lifeline once in a while and say, hey, don't, don't, let, you know, don't let pride overtake you. If you get to the point where you just, where it becomes dangerous, uh, or it becomes foolish, just call. I'll come and get you. I, I don't care if it's in Georgia still or, or Pennsylvania or wherever you're going to be. Just just call. And, and I threw that out there a few times. Well, the farther he went, the more it took a mental toll on him as well as a physical toll, but mentally became the big strain. And by the time he got into New Jersey and New York and was going up into the Northeast on the second half of the journey, uh, he started talking about the, the anguish that he was going through. He had people that he had met that he hiked portions of the trail with. That really helped him. And at church camp in July, uh, we took a moment and all of the kids wrote a note to him and we sent it ahead of him for him to pick up at this little dinky town along the trail where he'd come down off a mountain, go up to the next one. And, and he said that, that that was a major part in it. But the, the conversation kind of changed a little bit. It was him going, man, I'm just about to go into the White Mountains and Mount, you know, Mount Washington's the worst weather in North America. 
persistently year after year. They just had a hailstorm there yesterday, and he did get caught in a hailstorm, and blah, 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 blah. And I started to talk like this. You can't quit now. You can't quit now. I mean, you, you can almost see Maine if you lift up your eyes and look. I know, I know it, I know it. And that conversation started to take place where he needed the encouragement and someone on the outside that watched him go that far just said, you can't quit now, you almost got this thing. The Hebrew letter is written to Christians who started something for which they counted the cost. They paid a cost. And they needed to finish it. And in the chapters we're in now, and, and especially rolling into the next couple chapters, 10, 11, and 12, you really see the writer pouring it on, saying, you, you, you've got to finish this thing. Look at all the people who have gone on before you. Look who's waiting on you when you get there. You've got a cloud of witnesses. You can do this. But right here in chapters 9 and 10, this portion of the series of Hebrews that we've come to, and Anthony, as he has taken another uh, appointment to help another church uh, in a matter of preaching this morning, has, has given me this task of setting the imagery, imagery like Sam alluded to in the Lord, at the Lord's table, of giving you the imagery that the Hebrew writer gave to the Christians to say, consider this, picture this in your mind. There's a couple things in this text that the Hebrew writer says, in essence, you're making a big mistake if you turn back to the safety of Judaism. And Judaism at that time in the Roman Empire was not being severely persecuted, as was the religion of Christ. And we learn in chapter 12 that they had not resisted yet to the point of bloodshed, but in chapter 10 he says, consider your walk. You have uh, suffered persecution, many sufferings. You've, you've forfeited your possessions. You've been plundered. You've lost your businesses. You've lost your homes. There's, there's been a persecution. You haven't shed blood yet. But I'll tell you about the one who did shed blood so that you could finish the race. He, first of all, made an appearance for us in heaven so that we could have a presence before God. He is the greater sacrifice that's been made on your behalf. He shed his blood on your behalf, and it's so much greater than all of the animal sacrifices that have ever been offered, by which the priest continuing year after year offering thousands upon thousands of these sacrifices could never be made perfect by them. It only, as we learned in the letter, rolled their sins over. And in April, in tax season, we use the word deferment sometimes. We, we ask for a pardon to put off the payment of taxes for a while. And this is what this was before God was a pardon. It deferred the penalty, or the debt, I should say, of sin before God. And he says, when Jesus came... He made an appearance before God so that we could stand in the presence of God. And what that appearance was, was bringing himself as the offering on your behalf 
not with another's blood or the blood of a bull or a, or a, a lamb, but with his own precious blood, he stood before the Father and offered himself on our behalf. He did something for us that we were completely unable to do. And he stands in the presence of the holy God, and he represents us. Listen to chapter 9, or read along if you would in, your, in the scriptures. Chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. And I'm going to read portions from these five verses. But Christ came as high priest. With his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all. That is the heavens, the throne room of God. Without spot to God. That those who are called, that would be us, who have believed and have responded to the call of Christ, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance, that you and I may go to heaven. He did this. Now in chapter 9, verses 24 through 28, he continues on and says, Christ entered into heaven itself, now to appear, listen to this, this is the key phrase of the sermon, now to appear in the presence of God for us. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, a sinner. It's a fearful thing. It's a fearful thought. And he says, but Christ made an appearance before the presence of God for us. And he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, offered once to bear the sins of many. Once. That's a key word in the book of Hebrews. This offering of himself, picture him in the imagery now that I'm setting before you, ascending from his earthly work, coming to the Ancient of Days, as in Daniel's prophecy in chapter 7 of Daniel, where he said, I saw my Lord coming to the Ancient of Days. Picture him coming to him and meeting together with him and saying, it is finished, I have made the offering of this body which you have given me, which is in the text of Hebrews 9, this body, I have made the offering for the sins of many. And that includes me. And that includes you. And he did it once. One time. For all men, everywhere, in all generations, all who have ever lived from creation onward until now and whoever will live until he returns are going to be covered under this offering that was made once for the sins of the people. This should shed light on that statement where Paul said he is our all in all. He is all that we need in everything. Complete package for all of mankind's needs my everyday needs, all that I have to know, all that I have to become, all that I have to do. He is everything, but most importantly, he is the great sacrifice. Now, I'm going to get to the point where he's greater, greater than what sacrifices. Bulls and goats, yes, that's been established, but there's something more. There's something more that we're going to need to see here in a little bit that makes him a greater sacrifice. So hold on to that. 
for Christians that Christ stands now in the presence of the Father for us. That is a tense that suggests that he remains in the presence of the Father for us. I want you to think about how the Apostle John instructed us as Christians that when we sin, that we should confess our sins to God, who is faithful and just to forgive us. Chapter 1, verse 9 of his first letter. Then in 1 John chapter 2, he goes on to say, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, in other words, but if you do, when you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. He stands in the presence of God as our advocate. So Christ has gone on before us as the firstborn from the dead. He walked into the presence of God and presented himself to the holy God and said, I'm here to make an offering of my own blood with the body that you have given me for that earthly ministry, and I'm doing it for them. I'm here to do that. I stand before your presence to do that. And the construct of that language is that he continues to stand in the presence of God for us. So right now, right now, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father on your behalf and mine. For us, he's in the presence of God. Secondly, look at this down here. His perfection makes us perfect. His perfection makes us perfect. Which of you convicts me of sin? He asked, and no man answered. How many of you could do that? How many of you could stand in a group of people, especially your enemies, who have been watching you, following you, trying to find fault in you? How many of you could stand before them and say, which of you convicts me of sin? Jesus did. And just like he, when he was accused falsely, didn't open his mouth, when he asked them, who convicts me of sin? They couldn't open their mouths. Peter said he was without guile and deceit was not found in his mouth. And he suffered for it. He suffered for it. Here's what the Hebrew author says about the perfect man, Jesus Christ. Listen closely and read with me if you want. Let's go back to chapter 7 and pick up a couple of verses um, in uh, 24. Uh, let's go 25 through 28. Therefore, he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you see how that's establishing even a couple chapters earlier what I just set forth? He always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save you to the uttermost. There is nothing that you're going to do where God says, well, that's just too sinful. I can't go that far. He can save you 
to the uttermost. Now, here's how he's able to do this. Let's, let's put together the, the uh, presentation of what it means that Jesus was sinless and this doctrine of the sinlessness of Jesus. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath, and it is reiterated in Psalm 110, verse 4, which came after the law, appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. So this doctrine of the sinlessness of Jesus is critical. And so in chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, the writer says, and every high, or excuse me, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. All right, church. Here's where I want to make the connection between what I was saying to you before. Hold on to this idea that Christ came as the greater sacrifice. It was he was greater than the blood of bulls and goats and all of the sacrificial sin offerings that were offered. He's greater than that. We sit here and go, oh, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I, I like that, actually. I'm really glad we don't have to do that anymore and that this isn't a big bloody altar up here. We're all okay with that. But we're the priesthood of God. He has made us all to reign with him, kings, and he has made us all to serve God with him, priests. Here's what I'm proposing to you to be careful of. Christian, of a priestly proportion, we make this mistake. Do you still stand offering daily sacrifices to God in hopes that he'll accept you by offerings which can never take away sin in replacement of the great sacrifice that was made once for all to put away the sins of all men? A.K.A., i.e., are you trying to impress God with your goodness? Are you trying to be justified by your works? You say, well, I, no, I don't believe in that. We don't believe in that, but do we do that? When I've wronged my fellow man and I've wronged my God, do I immediately turn to the blood of Christ and turn to that great sacrifice made once for all to put away Matt Thomas's sins forever and say, my Lord and my God, I need the blood of Jesus Christ to wash me of all my sins. Or do I say, I really messed this one up. Well, I just need to get, I need to do better about this. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to offer up this, quote unquote, sacrifice to God in hopes that he'll accept me as being better than I was yesterday and that he'll see my improvement and he'll accept that sacrifice and he'll save me. I'm going to be so nice that maybe even God will forget all of my meanness. Maybe he'll forget the evil that I did yesterday if I can just become more righteous today and love just a little bit harder. 
these are the types of sacrifices that we're prone to offer up. And we're being warned very strongly here, very sternly. Number one, we don't need to do that. Jesus offered himself to the Father, and he stands in the presence of God. And he, if you will, he is looking down from the heavens toward us. Even, as Sam said, residing within us, he's present here. He's present with the Father. He is the Almighty Son of God, but he wants us to see him standing next to the Father saying, if you sin, bring it here. Bring it here. Don't try to go and offer sacrifices daily, which will never take away your sins. Don't try to work harder. Don't try to do more. Yes, you need to become more like Jesus. But if you're offering that to God in order to save you, he'll reject your sacrifice. He'll reject your sacrifice. Because what you're saying is, I need, I'm afraid to, or I'm fearful of, or I don't, I don't believe strongly enough in the grace that you've offered me through Jesus, that he's actually going to make an argument on my behalf I would rather argue my righteousness with my own goodness than to have to face Jesus in prayer and ask him to take away my sins. He said, don't do that. A lot of Christians are doing that. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has hindered you from obeying the truth? What was the truth? That the grace of God has come and you no longer live according to the old man as Sam read to us up here but now you live by faith as an alive person to God you live by faith that Jesus Christ will take away your sins by the offering of himself in perfection one time for all This is how we can be busy in churchianity, for lack of a better word, doing everything about church and still not trust the blood when it comes right down to it. And he said, this is a relationship. This is a covenant. It's not a contract. Offer so many sacrifices and I'll issue forgiveness in return. Not a contract. Anthony covered that a couple weeks ago, maybe last week, two weeks ago. This is a covenant relationship. Men, how many of you think you can buy your wife's anger off with a dozen roses? It might help her to take a deep breath and sit down and listen or let her talk a little bit. But if you just wanted to bring home flowers every day for a while, she's going to say, you're trying to make a contract with me. Unless the problem is resolved, unless we can rebuild trust, unless we can work through this issue together, relationally, just slide the flowers over here out of the way and let's talk about this. And that's what God is saying. Don't try to offer yourself into heaven by your own offerings. You're powerless to do that. Powerless to do that. So there is no longer an offering for sin. Verse 18, what, what can I offer to God to make this better? What, what can I do? 
there's no longer an offering like that to be made. Not bulls and goats. We all say, well, yeah, I understand that. We switch covenants. Chapter 9, in fact, says we're in the New, New Testament. Uh, went into effect when Christ died, blah, blah, blah. I got that. No more, no more offerings for sin. Offerings because of grace. Yes. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. John, class. Because of grace abounding, we offer to God what? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Ourselves as a living sacrifice. I just offer myself as a living sacrifice. I'm not going to try to impress with my own righteousness and goodness. There is none good but one, and that is God. I'm just going to offer myself in his service. And when I sin, I'm going to go to the offering that was made on my behalf that was perfect, done once, and good for all men, all time. Trust that. That's the gospel. That's the good news. You don't have to try to come up with something on your own. It's been done. And we love him because he first loved us in this way. Amen. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Paul said, who will save me from this body of death? I sin. I, I, I try not to, but I do. And when I, when I want to do something, I don't. Who's going to save me? Jesus Christ, because he stands in the presence of God on my behalf and offers up sacrifices. So here's some suggestions on how you can obey this. Instead of trying to do better and do more and trying some other means, lay down your ministry of sacrificial offerings. Lay it down. That, that you're just going to try and do better all the time. You won't. You're going to sin the rest of your life. You're going to be in this dilemma the rest of your life. Lay it down. If you are not a Christian, the apostles began to preach this message that we're talking about, that Christ went to the Father and presented himself as the offering for all men. He went to the Father and he presented the message. And when men said in the very first gospel sermon in Acts chapter 2, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. That's what you should do. And that day, about 3,000 men responded to the gospel. If you're a Christian, we are taught, since you have come into the family of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of baptism into Christ, since you have done this and you're a family member, when you sin, you're not kicked out of the family. Every time you are family, you're a child of God. You never become an unchild of God. You can cast away your inheritance, but you're still born into his family. You're still a Christian. And so what do you do if you said, I, first of all, maybe I haven't been offering myself. Secondly, maybe I've been trying too hard of my own accord to please God with my own offerings. What do I need to do? What must I do? To you, the majority of us in this room, he says, pray that God may forgive you. Acts chapter 8, 1 John chapter 1. Pray, talk covenantially, relationally to the God who is calling you to himself 
and is willing to forgive your sins, pray to God, Father, forgive me. You think, oh, that's not enough. I got to do more. He said, confess your sins and he is faithful and just to forgive your sins. Do you trust that? Do you trust how simple that is? That's really simple. We want to do something more fancy. But I can do more than just pray. I got to do more than just pray. He said, pray to your father and ask for forgiveness in Christ through the sacrifice that's been offered once for you already. Church, we need to be prayerful. We need to be prayerful every day. We need to be prayerful about a lot of things, but may this be first. Pray that God will forgive you as Christ stands there beside him and says, what do you want me to say to the Father for you? Here I, here I am, here I stand. What do you want me to say to God for you? He's our mediator, our go-between, and he's calling us to pray. Then trust in the sacrifice and eagerly wait for your inheritance. Eagerly wait, eagerly. Get, well, what can I do? Offer yourself, get busy in the ministry of the word, the ministry of the gospel, bringing the gospel, bringing this good news to others, strengthening each other. Get busy in this work of ministry, Ephesians chapter 4. That's what we do while we're eagerly waiting. And you know, Jesus is waiting. You say, well, I, I don't like to wait. I'm kind of impatient. When I die, if we don't go straight to heaven and we go to this place called paradise, we've got to wait there. What are we going to be doing? In this text, I, didn't, I, I found this and I opened my eyes again to something. Jesus is waiting for the day to bring you home. So if you think, oh, I'm kind of impatient, I won't wait, I just want to go straight there. I just want... Jesus has got patience. And while we're fussing and clamoring and, and working, you know, working to, to try to, to better everything, he stands in the presence of the Father and says, just cast your cares upon him. Come to me with your sins, and I will cleanse you of your sins. And then go and sin no more. Go in obedience and learn the grace grace that comes from God and the grace of obedience. Well, that's the message of Hebrews 9 and 10, maybe um, in a nutshell, but I strongly encourage you to go home and read and reread the beauty of those passages. I'm going to extend the invitation to those of you who, who may not be Christians to repent and be baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. He stands calling, and I want to extend an invitation to Christians to either Confess your sins, if need, need be, before men, but in your closet, as Jesus taught us in that Sermon on the Mount. Just go between you and God and take your concerns to him and let Jesus mediate on behalf of you. Let's stand and sing this song, and if we can help you in any way, we will. I heard an old, old story How a Savior came from glory How he gave his life